Welcome to Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain magazine podcast. I'm Tamara Rappa, founder, editor-in-chief, and your host. Join me here as we dive deep and go behind the scenes with creatives from all fields, exploring the origins for game-changing ideas and careers, and so much more. It's our expert curation of conversations with those who are pushing culture forward, and we're inviting you to get inside the story. This week has me sitting down with the food expert whose recipes are splashed all over New York Times cooking. You'll hear about her three most made meals and her popular pasta hashtag and its collection of dishes. You'll also hear about how she went from cabaret singer to bartender to publicist to working on actor turned vintner Kyle McLaughlin's Pursued by Bear Wines. We talk about exactly when it was that Kalu Henry took her deep dive into the culinary world and her extensive background in creating and editing recipes. We get into the look, the feel, the food of Kalu's two cookbooks to date, and how her romantic and robust storytelling sets her apart from the rest. Listen in to hear all about spending quality time with friends, a favorite restaurant to add to your list, and an Instagram memes account to go to for a laugh. Discover where Kalu buys her crab and how an air compressor became a terrific tool in the kitchen. We talk being cozy and cooking on vacation and why doing so tests one's creativity. On the podcast, Kalu shares stories around her writer roots and the future she's got waiting for her in her 1900s Nova Scotia farmhouse that she and her husband are restoring themselves. Kalu shares what it's like working with a spouse, a surprise discovered deep amongst the pages of one of her years of notebooks, and her Italian grandmother's influence. Get a candid and firsthand account about what it's like to be a woman working in food and the pressure that exists to be a bon vivant, but to look a certain way. We discuss stepping into her voice and the details around her beloved substack that make it worth reading and why it feeds Kalu's own soul. We talk about meat as an accessory, how turkey is the chicken that keeps on giving, and the tastemaker shares what tops her list of favorite things from books to condiments. And of course, we break down the best and the chicest ways to feed a crowd, including the masterful menus she has and is putting together for her birthday and for the holidays. It's a tasty treat just in time for them. Our conversations with creatives continue as Story and Rain talks to Kalu Henry. Hi, Kolu. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking for a while, so I'm glad we finally made this happen. Me too. I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. I want to know more about you. (laughs) I feel like we probably know a lot of the same people. Um, Well, we're about to get into it. I want to hear a lot more about you. Okay, great. Where exactly did you grow up? So I grew up in the suburbs, actually, of New York City. I was born in in Manhattan, and then my parents moved to Rockland County when I was about three years old. What town? Nanuet. Do you know Rockland County? Yeah, I'm a native New Yorker, too. Where were you born in Manhattan? Oh, my God. Did you grow up in the city? A hundred percent. I'm so jealous. I was born at St. Vincent's Hospital. Amazing. I was born at New York Hospital, and the first three years of my life were on um, Washington Square Park. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was always really mad that that they moved us to the suburbs. <laughs> I was like, I wanted to be a city kid. Yeah. I have um, 
I have two half siblings and they are city kids. So I have a lot of, uh, a lot of gripe with my dad. No, I'm just teasing. They're great. At that age, it's like the last thing you want to do is move out of the city, you know? But I feel like you love being in, you're a city person. Yes, I am. You also love being outside of the city, right? I do. I feel like now that, you know, my husband and I moved to Hudson, New York, uh, it'll be 10 years ago, crazily, in February. At first, I was really nervous that people were going to be like, ooh, she's not in the city. No one cares. And now everyone moved up here anyway. So it's sort of... <laughs> Everybody lives where you where you are now. But I always say that, you know, if I need a fix, I'll just go down and get, get a city. That's right. For some time, I was living between New York and LA. And that was... I, you know, I went and did, did that for work for a, for a bit of time when I left magazines and went to be a stylist. Yeah, different time zones. People never knew where I was. People didn't know whether I was in New York or in LA. Do you come from a family of creatives? And yet, not. Re- I mean, yes and no. It's interesting because not tech, not like uh, traditionally. Um, my mom definitely had creativity in her makeup, and my grandmother as well. Um, but strangely, on my dad's side, where oddly most of the creativity went. He didn't have any. So on my dad's side, my first cousin is a comedian and a writer, Tim Heidecker. Um, I don't know if you know Tim and Eric. Yeah. And then his sister is a, a, a YA novelist. Oh, wow. And I am also a writer. So yeah. all of the writing sort of happened on my dad's side of the family, but I really don't know where it came from. And on my mom's side of the family, there are writers. So I don't know why. <laughs> wow. Well, you're a beautiful writer. Oh, thank you. Where did you go to school for college? Where did you? I went to Emerson College in Boston. Yep. And it was great. I majored in musical theater. A totally different uh, path. Yeah. So what happened after school? What were your first jobs like after school? What were you doing? So I I was, um, so I worked in restaurants in in college, in my last year of college, and then Moved after I graduated to New York, back to New York to become a cabaret singer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're a beautiful singer as well. So I was bartending in the city and doing, you know, the occasional one woman show sort of vibe, just like talking about failed relationships and singing jazz standards. Oh my gosh. I love this. Oh, let me picture this. Where were you bartending? I was bartending at a restaurant on the Upper West Side. It was, I don't know. It wasn't even, it was like a a fake French brasserie called La Biciclette. Oh yeah, right. On 85th or 80, yeah, 85th in Columbus. Yeah, 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 Um, of course, of course. Oh, you know it? Yeah, yeah, I've been in the city for so long, yeah. Yeah, so I was there for a really long time and then, actually, let me back up, sorry. Before that, when I first, first moved to New York, my best friend from childhood also had graduated from college and she was working at the knitting factory and myself, my cousin Tim, the comedian, and a bunch of other people all started working there as soon as we got out of college as our first jobs. And there was a Bell Atlantic Jazz Festival that happened like a long time ago. Michael Dorf headed it up. And so we all sort of worked on the jazz festival and on this weird website called jazze.com, which was going to be like a website for all these jazz musicians. And then everything sort of went under over there and we all got laid off. And then I started bartending. <laughs> and that I was PC club. Okay. okay. And then a friend, I always forget about that piece, which is kind of interesting, the Knitting Factory piece, because it's kind of a, a legendary yeah. 
spot. I haven't thought about the knitting factory in a while. And I remember going there. I don't remember. Yeah. Or, but yeah, to- completely. What a moment in New York. Yes. It was cool. Have you ever read that book? Um, Girls They Write Songs About? No. It's wonderful. It's about two women who work at a music magazine in the early aughts and the sort of trajectory and then downfall of their friendship. It's really good. Well, I have to pick it up. It sounds good. Yeah. Very, very good. It made me reflect on my knitting factory days. Anyway, sorry, I'm all over the place. No, I, we love, I love this. And then I started working in PR. A friend of mine said, you'd be great at PR. I don't know what PR was. So I ended up working in fashion PR. I was an intern. And then I started working um, at a PR agency called Full Picture. Okay. So this is where we need to <laughs> do a deep dive. So yes. what years were you at Full Picture? I was probably, I'm trying to think. So I want to say 2002-ish. 2001, not, not, not 2001, 2002 to like 2004. And then I went back in like 2007 to like 2000. And- okay. So I definitely was working with full picture then. Mm-hmm. So I had just left Cosmopolitan around that time. Yeah. And then in 2007 was actually... So that period of time for me was when I went to LA for a, a stretch. Okay. By 2007, I was back in New York and I was freelancing at Time Inc. And then in 2008, that's when I started at Hearst and worked for Oprah. So cool. were you open to working in PR? And what was it about you that your friends said you'd actually be great at this? I don't know, but it's funny because my mom also said that to me in co- when I went away to college. She's like, you'd be great in PR. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know if PR is. I think- <laughs> I think I am. I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So <laughs> I think um, I, I really, to be honest with you, I can't give you a, a real answer, but I was and I did it. And I actually, I do like aspects of it. I love telling stories, which I think ties into sort of the bigger picture of what we're talking about. You know, I like having the ability to uh, champion people that I really believe should have their story told. And then yes. also, figure out the best person to tell that story. You yes, know? Yes, so yes, yes. I think that that kind of PR is really cool and fun and can be really meaningful. What were your accounts at Full Picture? That's a great question. So long ago. Um, Molly Sims? Yeah, I didn't work. No, but I did. I did not work in Molly Sims. I worked more. When I first got there, I worked on... What the heck did I work on? Oh, I worked with Carolina Kirkova. Okay. That was early. Yeah. And um, a bunch of tequila company. What else did we work on? There were some real estate projects. And then when I went back, I sort of helped head up the hospitality end of things. So we worked at the Royalton. We worked with, what else did we work? We launched a crazy website for a woman who's a dietitian. I really want to get into right now. <laughs> um, and a couple of handful of other sort of restaurant clients. But then I also, uh, Desiree Gruber, who um, yep. owns Full Picture, who is amazing and has been a real mentor to me, her husband um, is Colin McLaughlin, the actor. Yep. And he and I really connected because he's super passionate about food. And he had just launched a wine at the, towards the end of my second time at Full Picture. I was going out to sort of just take on freelance clients. And I said to Desiree, I was like, listen, like Kyle and I really get each other. Like we like each other. We get along would you consider letting me take Kyle as a client? And she was like, absolutely. Yes. 
So I ended up working with Kyle for a number of years on his wine. And we're still very good friends to this day, which is great. And so how did things go from wine with Kyle at full picture and the hospitality clients to I've made my way into food? So during my time, that past time uh, doing hospitality at full picture, I had also spent a couple of years prior working doing restaurant chef PR. And during that time, I really learned how to write recipes because I was constantly having to edit them for publications because chefs are wonderful and amazingly talented, but don't really write recipes all that well. And then I was also, you know, producing photo shoots and all the stuff that sort of goes along with, you know, any sort of PR editorial job. But in addition, learning this sort of skill set of like, okay, like I can write a recipe, like this goes with that. That makes sense. Anyway. I left Full Picture and I actually ended up moving to or- Portland, Oregon for about a year and a half to work at the Oregon Wine Board because I felt like I learned so much about food. I was like, I also, I'm working with Kyle. I also want to know how to like learn more about wine. And so uh, we did that, my husband and I, and um, I did learn a ton about wine, but I was not, I'm not a West Coast girl. Um, and so Right at that same time, there was a lot of uh, changes going on at um, Bon Appetit, and I was contacted um, to see if I'd be interested in going to work at Condé Nast to help on the PR side of things. And I said, of course, because it was always a dream to work at Condé Nast till you actually work there. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so we ended up moving back, and and I um, I worked there for almost four years uh, half of them were working on the PR side of things, which was cool because I sat on both editorial and the marketing side. Yes. Um, so I got to learn a lot about that, that business. Um, and then, uh, I was still doing the same thing. I was writing recipes and producing photo shoots and doing all this sort of editorial stuff. And it was right when Instagram sort of took off and I started a hashtag on, uh, Instagram called back pocket pasta because I was coming home really late, tired, but pulling together like nice pasta dinners and it got some attention and one thing led to another and I got very lucky and I got a book deal with Clarkson Potter to write about back pocket pasta. So that was cool. Very cool. (laughs) At, At the time I had no idea like what a big deal was. I went in, not really, um, I think it actually worked to my benefit because I was just like, well, I want to, I want to do this. I want to write a book. Right. And you basically created a personal brand. Yes. The springboard for that, would you say, was this hashtag back pocket pasta in a way. Exactly. How many posts did you post before it became a thing? I mean, it was such a different animal as we both know. So it yeah. wasn't like extraordinarily large, but like, Bon Appetit was supportive of it. And then they, you know, put it in the magazine and it was a good idea. You know, it was like, if you shop seasonally and have a well-stocked pantry, who doesn't love pasta? Plus there was like a real personal story because I grew up in a very Italian American home um, on my mom's side. So there was just like a real authenticity, I think that came across about the whole thing. And and it's true. Um, And yeah, I just... It was sort of crazy. So I left VA and I uh, I wrote Back Pocket Pasta, which came out in 2017. You've since contributed to so many different publications and outlets in the New York Times, of course, Food and Wine, many yeah. others. Uh, who have been sort of your longest 
uh, collaborations been with? Can you sort of name them for our listeners where you've contributed? Yeah, I mean, I have close to 100 recipes up on the New York Times cooking app. So I think in terms of quantity and, you know, I work, did work with them for many years. um, And they're some of the most, some of them are very very popular recipes. Um, So I would say the Times and also Food and Wine has been a really great collaborator. Hunter Lewis, who was the um, food editor at Bon Appetit when I was there, is now the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine. And he and I have maintained a really lovely friendship over the last, I mean, now it's been a really long time, 10, almost 10 years. Um, so working with them is also super, super wonderful. Um, and now I'm also, this isn't really what you asked me, but a lot of my focus in the last year has been working on uh, my Substack. Can't wait to talk to you about that. What are your three, three most popular recipes of yours, publicly posted sort of recipes? What are they? The roasted tomato and white bean stew, um, which came out literally as the pandemic started, was the number one vegetarian recipe of 2020 for New York Times cooking. Um, it went like pe- people went crazy for it. And then also the pasta e ceci. Yeah. Also on the cooking app, people went crazy for that too. Every, it was, those are like my two, like, I don't want to say viral, but like close yeah. to viral as it can be. Yeah. I'm trying to think what else people love. Beans. Oh, the beans. People are crazy for my beans. So there's another recipe <laughs> on New York Times cooking that um, they're creamy white beans with herb oil and people go nuts for those too. So three recipes all with beans are my most popular. <laughs> and how does it work in food? And we're talking about different, we're talking about food and wine, we're talking about Bon Appetit. I think you've contributed to places like Cherry Bomb and, and, mm-hmm. and Refinery29. For me as a fashion editor, you're sort of always working when I would pull edits of clothing and accessories, I'd always consider my, had to consider my audience. Like my interview magazine audience is far different than my Cosmopolitan, than my Oprah magazine. Is is it the same in food or is food somewhat universal and you're enlisted or hired for your exact point of view? I think it has sim- very similar to, to being a stylist, you know, especially with the times, you know, they're, they're very much focused on SEO and not wanting, and not in a bad way, you know, it's just like, I think a lot of brands have to do that, you know, for, for revenue. Um, and also how do I make this recipe as simple as possible in terms of like pots and pans and not, you know, cause people really want to get what they really want at the end of the day is to get something on the table that is delicious. It's not hard. It's, you know, anyone can do it. And it doesn't take a lot of time. So um, obviously there's examples of like project cooking and all of that stuff. But for the recipes that I specifically was working on for for the times, those were sort of the drivers, right? Um, Food and wine allowed me a little bit more uh, freedom in terms of like longer format, you know, writing um, and which I always appreciate. Um, And they were pretty pretty chilled recipes too. And both publications, you know, you sort of, they, they tell you kind of what they want and then you send them a bunch of ideas and then they pick the ones that they would like you to develop, which I'm sure it's similar, I'm sure to style. Yeah. Very similar. yeah. So, um, so the, the thing that I, 
like about the newsletter is that I am able to share an occasional essay or put something in there that might, you know, like a weird ingredient that people in the, you know, readers of the times might be like, I don't, what is, what's in Duya? Or I can't get green garlic here or you right. know what I mean? So right. freedom to, to create. So you have a column on Substack, Kolu cooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody follow, follow Kolu there. What can people expect from your newsletter? that you know they don't see from you elsewhere is it just the sheer creativity is it more st- storytelling yeah i think it's it's a combination of both i you know the recipes that i'm i'm developing these days that they're going to live there um and then there's definitely um a, a personal connection like i feel safe writing about um i wrote an essay we have a house in Canada and we lost our dog about a year and a half ago. I'm so sorry. And thank you. Um, we actually just got a new dog three weeks ago. Oh. We a new puppy. He's so sweet. Um, but it was like a really, really difficult grieving process for me because I, I've never really lost anyone that on that level or anything, person, animal. Um, and anyway, so I was like, really? And he passed away in Nova Scotia. And so I was like, really sort of processing all of this, like, emotion around returning to the place where he had passed away. And so I was just like, fuck it. Okay. I'm feeling all these feelings. Like I'm going to, I'm going to write, I'm going to write it. I'm going to see how, and, and it was really well-received people weren't like, Oh, this isn't food. Like, you know, so I feel like, why is she right? Right. But you know, why is she telling me her sad story about her 20 year old dog that died? Um, you know, I, and I feel like I'm hoping to foster that and continue to grow that audience as a place where, yes, obviously people who know me in the industry, they know that I write about food and develop recipes. I'm happy about that. But I also think the nice thing about Substack is like the people that are there because they want to be as opposed to Instagram where it's just, I don't know. I just feel like there's a more of a more ownership over that audience. Um, and there's more connection and people are kind of along for the ride. Yeah. We're about to launch our Substack. It's we've been so busy with so oh. many other things we haven't been able to. But I feel like people that come to Substack, they come to hear more about the creator, right? It's like, okay, this is a person that writes about food or this is a person that writes about movies, but I want to know more about this person. So I think that that's what's so beautiful about Substack. I really like hearing from other people. You know, like I I have a, a column that I do sometimes called Dinner Again, where I share what I'm actually eating at home because I think a lot of people have a misconception about, you know, how I eat dinner or I'm not eating fancy food all the time. Like a lot of nights it's like beans, greens and like ground turkey because I'm testing very rich things. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it just kind of breaks down that, that barrier and makes people feel more human. I love that. How have you seen food and cooking change in culture and in pop culture? I mean, who that's a tough one. <laughs> um, pop culture. For sure. I mean, I feel like for in the last, I mean, I do feel like 2009, 2010, 2011, it kind of was starting this food as culture moment, right? Through the lens of all of these different angles, like fashion and design. And, you know, I feel like it's continuing. I thought it had peaked, but it's not. We got the bear. We got, you know, lessons in chemistry. Not that that really is the same, but it's, food focused screen book. Have you read that book by the way? I have not. I have not, but I, lessons in chemistry is on my list. I haven't gotten to it yet. The, the, I heard it's a, amazing. 
it's it does the show takes i mean the book takes place in the in the 50s so it's not yeah. like but it has a big food focus yeah. um i think people in general find food so interesting because it's something that we can all relate about right i mean everyone has a story about a meal or about an experience and universally i think that it's just an entry point in a way to to connect with I mean, anyone, I can connect with anyone about, like, I ask my friends all the time, like, what are you making for dinner? Because I actually want to know what they're making for dinner because it gives me an insight, like a window into like what their day is and and all that stuff. So I'm rambling a little bit, I think, but no, not at all. Not at all. That's I mean, I think that is why it's so popular. When was it that you fully realized your food voice? How was it cultivated and how do you describe it? You were working in PR and somewhat in hospitality and then then heavily in wine. When did you feel like this is my food identity? This is my food voice. This is who I am as a food creator. I think backpacking pasta was so such an amazing. It's an I love backpacking pasta. It's such a beautiful book. But and being able to to have published that as like a as a green person in this industry. It was really, you know, such a learning experience for me. And I feel like even after that, I still was like, I mean, it was, it's an amazing book and I'm so proud of that book, but I feel like in the last couple of years, like I'm finally kind of stepping into my own in terms of what I want to say, as opposed to um, just writing recipes and, and, and putting up uh, head notes. And, you know, obviously that changes. Not everything is going to be an essay. Not everything is going to be a personal story, but I feel like, um, with my, my last book, uh, Kalu Coats, Easy Fancy Food, I was able to include some essays in there, which I was, that was actually the, the thing I was most proud about was that I had this opportunity to share in a way that wasn't, and also like, and, you know, with steps and how to make something, it was more like, please bring dessert and I don't bake and, you know, cooking on vacation and sort of sharing those, those sorts of things. How do you get your best ideas? How do they typically come to you? Do you know? It's a great question. A lot of times I, I, I work on like what I'm craving, which is challenging sometimes, but like tonight, for example, I'm always thinking how, what, what can I get out of this recipe? Like I want to, I want these components like squash, farro, feta cheese. I'm just throwing out three things. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I make that, make it interesting and make it something that I know people are going to want to make at home? Um, Cause everything's been done before. Let's be honest. Right. I mean, I could probably put that in right now and like 14 different recipes to come up, you know? So yeah. like how do I make it my own and then make it my own enough where people are want to make it their own, which is also something I really love about. And I try to do this with all my recipe writing is be very, very flexible about um, which back pocket pasta was perfect for. It was all about using what you had, but like, what is the balance between being telling someone what they have to do, but also then empowering them to go off script. Right. Yeah. It's I, balance. Right. Yeah. So and that for me is also fun because I don't want to be in the back of someone's mind where they're cooking like, oh, well, she didn't do it like that. And she said, you know, a white onion and I only have a yellow onion. And I'm just, I don't, I want people to enjoy the process and really just kind of 
yes, use my recipe. Obviously it's good and it's going to work, but also how are you going to make it? Like, what did you do differently? And I don't mean like, you know, I don't know if you ever look at the New York times cooking comments. Have you ever seen I, You know what? <laughs> From time to time I have, but not enough. It's probably worth taking a look. It's very funny. And I, so I don't mean, cause there they're like, well, I did this and then I did this and I only cooked it for this. And I put, and it was terrible. It's like, <laughs> they're so good. There's a meme account about them actually. You have to share that with us. Cause that's, that's funny. Um, so I'm not suggesting that, but right. I'm suggesting have fun, make it your own. Definitely use my recipe. Do it. Do it the first time. My friend Isabel said that to me. She made a my a mushroom soup that I posted, and she was like, "I I followed everything to a T because I like to do that the first time with a recipe." And I was like, "Oh, good to know." And she was like, "And it worked." I was like, "Great." <laughs> I mean, I was like, like "I love that feedback." I love that feedback. And now you can go do it. Next. She goes, next time I'm going to add ground sausage. And I was like, right. It'll wait. be tarragon instead of whatever. Yeah. Right. Where do you put together recipe ideas and record them? I know in your most recent cookbook, Kalu Cooks, you say that you keep a felt tip pen. Is it this one? I mean, this is, I, oh, yours, wait. It's a Le Pen. Yours like a fancy Le Pen. Okay. My, I, I can, I can only write with a felt tip pen. Anyway, you said that you keep wait. a felt tip pen and a big sketchbook by your by yeah. your stove this is, this is a little sketchbook but here's one right here zucchini cake how many of these sketchbooks do you have how many of these sketchbooks do you think you've accumulated a lot and they're all they're not all finished um there is the one that you're referring to i don't know where it is right now you wrote about it in in Kaluka. yeah yeah i know exactly what you're talking about i still i have that i actually brought it to nova scotia this summer um, because I love drawing menus in those, on those too, just like writing out what we're going to have. And then sometimes I'll do like a weird doodle. I can't really draw, but, um, I have a bunch of them and I love having them around. I feel like you should publish them. I mean, who wouldn't want to take a look, a peek at, at your, your notes could be really cool. Someday. We're touching on travel a little bit and we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Travel is important to you. Why? Yes. Why? I need to get out of my head and experience new things and eat things and meet people. And it just gives me energy in a way that other things don't. Um, we, my husband and I took a really big trip this past spring. We went to Europe for six weeks. We hadn't traveled anywhere together because of our dog. He was very old. Um, and then the pandemic, obviously. So we haven't been on a trip together in like three or four years. Um, and so we took, my dad was turning 75 and he wanted to go to Portugal. And so we all met up over there and then we just stayed and traveled around Europe for like six weeks, which was incredible and amazing. And also going back to your earlier question about inspiration, I get it from, from that as well. I mean, I have a whole list running somewhere. There's like another notebook. I don't know where it is. Ideas from that trip. And like, how can I recreate something that like, you know, transport me back to this, this moment. I feel like you must like travel back home with like ingredients stuffed in bags or. Normally I do. I've been known to fit a case of wine in a checked bag from France, but nobody knows about that. Um, yeah, yeah, let's not talk about that. Was love of travel something that was core to bringing you and your husband Chad together? Um, no, actually, interesting. He and I 
didn't travel together for a really long time. He is Canadian and we were waiting on um, paperwork for, for him. So I, he and I really only went out of the country together for the first time. I'm going to say it was after like six or seven years of being together. And we've been together for almost 20 or 20 years. Wow. That's amazing. Um, But now once that happened, you know, clearly we go all all over when we can. Now that we have dog again, who knows, but. (laughs) Yeah. I want to ask you all about that. Can you talk a little, you, you mentioned this, there's an entire section um, of your book that talks about uh, uh, in Kalu Cooks, it talks about cooking on vacation, which I love and which you don't ever see in a typical cookbook. Now that renting homes for both vacations and for work on, you know, via apps like Airbnb and, and Verbo, um, they're so popular and they're so accessible. It's so accessible now to travel and rent a house. Um, it's such a useful part of your book. I love it. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach cooking when you travel? I think travel cooking is cooking within constraints to some degree because you're working with such a limited amount of equipment and, you know, depending if you're flying or if you're driving or whatever, what you brought with you. Um, And I think that, and it goes uh, similarly to Nova Scotia where we spend our summers. I also cook within constraints because I just don't have the access to like a crazy Hudson farmer's market or the New York, you know, Union Square farmer's market where you can get like 15 varieties of everything. I'm working with like a cucumber that we could sit, call it a cute, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, sure. A couple heirloom tomatoes, but nothing anyway. So, but I have found that I really enjoy sort of working with less is a less is more philosophy because it, it really makes you more creative. It does. So you are dividing your time between Hudson and Nova Scotia. You're restoring a farmhouse. Yeah. Is that still in progress? I want to know everything there is to know about that. It sounds yeah. incredible. How did this project find you? Great question. Um, so my husband, as I mentioned, is Canadian. He's not from Nova Scotia. He's from Ontario. And we he took me to the South Shore Um probably, I don't know, six years ago. And, um, I fell in love with Nova Scotia and he brought me to other parts of Canada, not to Montreal yet. And which I love so much. And I was like, not impressed with anywhere we were going. And then he brought me there and I was like, this is what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> this is so magical. And, um, it's very main, main like, and we fell in love with it. We had just bought our house. I guess it was like 10 years ago. So we just bought our house here in Hudson and are in no, we're in no position to be doing anything. And so we just kind of looked for a long time and um, ended up spending some of the fall of 2020 uh, back on the South Shore just because things here were so intense and crazy. We just, I could, and I could get there. So I was like, get me the hell out of here. Yeah. It's a toxic situation. I need yeah. to get some space. And um, so we did, but so we started looking again just for kicks, but the real estate market there went completely crazy. Like it went here in Hudson. So prices on the South shore went like from reasonable people were buying properties from Vancouver site unseen, like they were doing here in Hudson. And so we were like, Fuck, like missed, missed out on that. And, um, made plans to go back the next summer to look two hours South of that to see if we could afford something there. Anyway, long story short, my, stepmother who is from New York, born and bred, Upper West Side, 
um, who has no connection to Canada at all. Her best friend's husband has an uncle from the North Shore. And she was like, are you and Chad still looking for a house? And I was like, yeah, why? She's like, well, Bob's uncle is looking to sell this farmhouse off market. And I was like, okay, sh- sure. Send me, send me the photos. And he, they, she sent the photos through and it was the house. And we've been looking for houses forever. We were prepared to buy like literally a shack. And it was 1866 farmhouse on 14 acres. Hadn't been lived in in 10 years. And it was, and I was like, look, I don't want to waste anybody's time because we don't have money. Like we're going to have to figure out some stuff. And it was the exact amount of money that we had had. How serendipitous. That is that. What a story. What an opportunity. Yeah. <gasps> so, meant to be destiny, all the things. Yeah. So we're, it's so cool and wonderful. And it's actually really close to Prince Edward Island. And I'm a huge Anna Green Gables fan. So that also. <gasps> Me too. Like, are you? I like voraciously read all of those books. Oh, yes. Me too. Love them. And also the series was so beautiful. Anyway. So. It's very much like that, red sand and all that stuff. So I was like, I feel like we're actually where we're supposed to be, even though I've never been to the North Shore at all. And so we bought the house and we've been working on it. Chad's doing all the work himself. Um, It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but so gratifying. And we had to buy the house with everything in it. Oh, so you're (laughs) figuring out what you want to keep and how to get rid of things. It's like that. (laughs) Most people get stumped when they need to clean out a closet. It's like, where am I, where do I, it's, it's so hard to donate things these days. I was just having this conversation with somebody. Like, I remember the days where like, I would call housing works and they would just like come sight unseen and just yeah. like pick up your stuff. Like it doesn't work that way anymore. And now you have a whole, you have a whole, whole piece of property, huge piece of property where you've got to manage all that. Yeah. It's definitely um, a lot of work, <laughs> but I'm not complaining. I feel very lucky to be able to like be the stewards of this home with the third owners, which is cool because it was built in 1866, and that's kind of, it was the same family up until um, this gentleman owned it, and now we own it. We're still in touch with him. That's mind blowing. Only three owners. Wow, it is kind of crazy. And strangely enough, this house that uh, that we bought is 1880, and we're the second owners. But tying it all back really quickly, sorry, this is actually kind no. of fun. when we got back from Europe this spring, we were doing like a big. Uh, organized clean out um and i came across a notebook actually it's this one i think it's this one and back in i think it was like 2000 i don't know when exactly but it was the last time i had written in this notebook because i told you about like a lot of them you know yeah. the last thing i wrote in this notebook which i hadn't picked up in forever was hang on where is it what a oh says split time between both Nova Scotia and Europe. Oh my God. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, how did I, how did I do that? It was like, it was 2018. Wow. So I wrote a note to myself and I said, since picking this book back up again, we bought a house in Nova Scotia and just got back from six weeks in Europe. Wow. Your Italian grandmother, right? She lived to be 102. Correct. What did she most teach you about food? What do you still think about when it comes to your day-to-day and her influence on you? I mean, we grew up eating, like, we had a sauce, Sunday sauce, every every Sunday. Cooking, she used to make fresh um, 
it was like, I remember just, and I, I talk about this about like a pasta, but just like waking up on Sunday mornings and like having that smell of like meatballs frying and like running downstairs and having my mom and her sort of over the stove cooking um, and just wanting to be around that energy, you know? Um, and just, you know, I think that she also told these really beautiful and crazy stories from having lived through the depression and, you know, through influenza and all these crazy things. Food was always so important. And, you know, I heard stories about like my great grandmother, who's my namesake, like rolling out ravioli in this one room tenement with like six kids. And it just, even though it's like, probably was miserable there, it sounds romantic, you know? And I, you know, I think I credit a lot to those sort of early stories about eating bean water because, you know, they didn't have, you know, anything right. else to eat. Right. But like that sounded cool. You know, I was like, I, I like, I'll drink some bean water. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We are going to talk about back pocket pasta again. Okay. You wrote a really honest essay for Bon Appetit about it. Um, mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about that here? Yeah. So during the time, so I wrote about my pasta and during that time I gained a lot of weight. I think a lot of it was eating all pasta. <laughs> and um, I was sort of, you know, I actually haven't read that piece in a, in a bit, so I need to revisit it, but it really was about, a, it was about body image at the end of the day. And, um, kind of striving and, and working towards being a healthier version of, you know, of myself. And I, I still struggle to be perfectly honest. It's really hard being a woman in this industry because you are expected to look a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, wear certain things and be a bon vivant, but also like, you don't, you're supposed to not be, you're supposed to be a certain weight. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of pressure, especially because of social media. It's something I still struggle with. I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah. I did lose weight. I lost about, um, I lost like 30 pounds. I did uh weight watchers. I think that was after that essay though. It was like 2018 or nine. It started in 2018 and it took about seven or eight months. Um, and then the pandemic happened and lots of things happened in life and I gained it back. Being a first time cookbook author. I mean, what it's so it's, it's difficult to put together a book and it requires a lot of focus and it's what your life becomes completely centered around. So like, to me, it would seem so logical to like that, that you're, you're eat sleeping and breathing this yeah. cookbook. So, you know, that, I can understand how that could be a, a, a byproduct. What were your favorite things? You said you did Weight Watchers for a while, but what were your favorite things to cook while you're dieting? What do you cook when you want to, like you said, you're testing a lot of super rich recipes. You want to eat something a little lighter. Is there anything you that were go-tos for you when you were dieting then and now? Yeah. I mean, I make a pot of beans every week. They're so healthy and they're del- they are delicious and filling. Um, ate a lot of beans. I still eat a lot of beans. Um, actually a lot of the recipes that I developed for the times during that time was when I was on Weight Watchers. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of salmon, yeah, a lot of chicken. 
um, which I still all, I love all of these things. Right. These are not things you stopped eating by any means. Definitely right? not. No. Um, I just love eating pasta, like, you know, all day and <laughs> yeah. everything. Yeah. I'll be 46 on Monday and I'm a middle-aged lady and it's hard. <laughs> it gets hard. No, no. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. But like perimenopause is real and yep. Trying to lose weight now is a lot harder than it was four years ago. I'll tell you that. That's right. No one ever talks about these things. And it's true. It's true. Yeah. I'm losing weight for, for myself and my health. It's not really about anybody else. Right. right. I don't know. It's complicated. I mean, you said it, it to be in the in the food industry. Throw yourself into that and be this bon vivant. That's such a great way of putting it. But then yeah. also, you know, having to uphold some sort of standard that's like, that's that's hard when, when real life is happening. Yeah. I do wish people would talk about it more, especially women in food, but you know, your cookbook, easy, fancy food, which we've been talking about, um, has a permanent place on the countertop in Charlotte's kitchen. And in just like that, did you? Oh yeah. That was so fun. Because it's certainly a book that Charlotte would own. Like it's in her kitchen and on her countertop and it, it looks great there. It's such a beautiful, beautiful book. I had read that you were inspired. This is another great story. You had inherited all these gourmet magazines from the 70s. Yeah. How amazing. And you've since donated them to a cooking school in Brooklyn. What a treasure for them. It's such a beautiful book. How did you put it together? And what brought you to this second book? So actually, they were my grandmother's. So they were from the 30s all the way up till the last gourmet was published. So it was kind of crazy. That's major. It was it was crazy. Um, Chad was like, "We're not doing this again. We're not moving these again." You know, for me, it, the vision, the creative piece, came first for this book as opposed to Backpacker Pasta, which, I mean, I stand by it. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, and it will always be a timeless and beautiful book. With easy, fancy food, I think going back to what we talked about earlier about sort of coming into your own as a writer, also transpired and like I had a vision for this book where I wanted to make it um more I think it'll still be timeless but just a little bit more thoughtful in terms of design and um I was very inspired by this the 70s because it is the decade of in which I was born um to sort of have that you know sort of vibe and I feel grateful that my publisher let me do it Will it become a series? Because it's like Kalu cooks colon. Well, like, I, is, is Kalu going to be cooking other things in this in a series, or was that just the title? I, I hope so. I think um, I think it's kind of a fun because it can be Kalu cooks and drinks wine. Kalu cooks and it can be yeah, exactly. It's it can kind of be a lot of different things. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's I'm hoping that they'll see that. <laughs> I saw it. I was like, oh. This is- this is book one of a series. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually working on, yeah, I'm working on another one right now. You're working on another book. Um, can you talk about that at all? Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's not a ton to talk about. I'm writing okay. recipes um, and testing recipes. And I don't know, I don't know much more than that at this point. I'm not being vague. I'm being completely straightforward with you. Um, it hasn't really shaped itself yet so I think I'm really just trying to write the recipes make the recipes really wonderful and then kind of figure out how I want it to how I want it to be but I really want to work with um 
Elena Sullivan, who designed Kalu Cooks, oh. um, because she did such an amazing job. She, I talked to her one time. She's an old designer friend from Bon Appetit, and yeah, I knew to design it. And I told her, like, kind of did the whole spiel about the seventies and the gourmet. She came back with this, like, I was like, yes, like this is. She heard me, you know. Yeah. Who else do you turn to for photos and design? Who's in your arsenal of creative contributors and how long would you say it took you to gather these contacts and yeah. beautiful resources? It's people like Elena, who else? Um, my friend Tara Donna shot um, this past book and she did such a beautiful job. She's so, so talented um, and was so generous with me and also lives um, kind of close to here. So that was like really nice. Um, and Rebecca Bartoszewski, uh, who did the props for the book, she was actually the first person that I hired other than Elena. I, I fell in love with an image that she had put together for, I don't remember what publication it was for, but I was like, I want that person. And, um, I reached out to her and she said that she would, she would work on it, which was really lovely. And I have, you know, because of time spent at VA and being around so many shoots, like I know a lot of those people, which I feel very, very lucky to to know. And now I have my husband that's working with me, which is also fantastic. So he's now shooting all my video. He's going to shoot the next book with me. How great. God help us. I hope it goes. <laughs> it'll work out. It'll be fine. Um, 20, 20 years and counting. You get, it'll be we'll be all right. We can, we can weather this. Yeah. But, have, but he's so talented. He's an artist and, you know, it just makes sense, you know? Um, so I'm really excited to to work with him on that. What do you love about being in a creative couple? That's a great question. We actually just shot videos all day. And sometimes like I want to kill him to be perfectly honest because he pays attention to detail. And I'm much more like, I, I'm not. I have a hard so you're time like, let's move on. Yeah. Yep. And he's not like that. Um, so I think it's a good balance because at the end of the day, he's usually right. <laughs> Like, he's like, we got to do it again. And I'm like, whatever. like, I don't want to, I want to go, I gotta go. I got other things to do. Like, but he is the best. And he also has such a uh, cool vision about things. Um, and he's a little weirder than I am. I'm a little normie. So it's good to have him in the mix as like the weird arty guy. That's like, well, let's like put a weird thing here. And it's like, yeah. And he, he was a video artist. So I will, you know, that's good. <laughs> in Kalu Cooks, you talk about meat as an accessory. I love that. Something that many people are embracing or trying to embrace plant-based. How yeah. exactly is meat an accessory in your meals? What's your philosophy? That's a great question. I think like for me, I look at like pancetta as an accessory, right? It's not like the whole meal. It is an like a little bit of salty pork thrown into a pasta or into some greens or whatever the case may be. It's just like, it's a, it's an ingredient. It's not the meal, right? Also something like induya, which is a spreadable sausage. I mentioned it earlier from Calabria. Like I can stir that into some beans. Like I, I think that um, it doesn't have to be the focus. It can be sort of a part of a bigger thing. Each of your cookbooks to date, we were talking about this, have been are so heavily based on storytelling. And not every chef or cook is skilled at uh, and building stories into a cookbook they might write. Some do, you know, but the stories 
aren't as true or as robust as yours are. Few really bring, I think, story together with food and instruction. You kind of touched on that. Why do you think your books are constructed in the way that they are? What do you think it is about your life and perspective that has allowed you to achieve it so beautifully? Thank you. Thank First of all, thank you. That's very kind. And I, that touched me. You're very uh, welcome. It's the truth. I love bringing people together and I love telling stories. And I think that for me, that that's the best part. It's like being able to say that you ate this with somebody or you went here with someone else. And that this is, you know, the result of a, of a, of a gathering or, or whatever it is. Um, brings me joy. And then I also think it encourages the reader to create their own sort of story around a dinner or a meal or a dish. And then that can kind of has a ripple effect, you know? Um, and I feel, I don't know. It's, it, that is, that's like the best part. Like, yes, of course I want people to make the food, but the storytelling for me is what really, really speaks to me. Yeah, it's inspiring and we can't wait to see more of it from you. Um, you. Of all the chefs and the home cooks in your sphere, whose food do you love to eat the most? And whose food do you think is the most beautiful to look at? That's a really good question. Do some key people come to mind? (laughs) You're good. You're a very good uh, interviewer. (laughs) Thank you. Why, thank you. Yeah, whose food is like, is craveable and whose food is like, oh, I've just fallen in love with this plate. I was thinking about, this is what made me think about it. I was thinking about Jonathan Waxman giving his blurb for your book, which is like, I thought I thought I was the master or whatever of, of like creative pasta on the fly. And so I was just thinking of all the people that have crossed your path, yep. home cooks to the celebrated chefs. It, it would be interesting yeah. to know who's on your list. I will say there's an amazing this is not a cookbook author, but there's an amazing restaurant here in town um, called Cafe Mutton, which is insane. I have been singing their praises literally since day one. And then they're in like the top 10 restaurants last year for BA, which I was like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." that food, they do just like really like soft, soft scrambled eggs and bologna, fried bologna sandwiches and just like food and like pate. It's like all the food that I would want to eat every day if I actually could eat that much rich food every day. Right. Um, so that's really um, a really amazing spot here in town that now is nationally, nationally known. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. My friend Allie Stafford is incredible. She wrote a book called Bread Toast Crumbs, which she had a, a recipe with her mom that went viral. It was, it's no need peasant bread. And literally, if you oh, don't yeah. even bake bread, bake bread. And she has a new book coming out about pizza, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, I'm trying to think of some stacks too, of people like that. I, that I love reading my friend Blanche Vaughn, who's the food editor at house and garden UK just had an amazing book come out. It's so wonderful. I just got it in the mail last week. Beautiful seasonal recipes. Great. We'll link these all in the show notes. Fantastic. It's November and we are walking into two months of cooking and entertaining, you entertain on a regular basis. You've said you, that you often have dinner parties and friends over five or six times a week, more often than not. What have you learned about cooking for a crowd? The thing that I, I'm actually doing it this weekend. So I, okay, I take I, us through. Yeah. So my birthday is next week and um, we're having our, our core, our core people over 
um, on Saturday for Castle A. So, which I'm really excited about. And so we're going to, in terms of entertaining and just like thinking, you know, ahead, we're going to make that Castle A. We're going to get oysters earlier in the week. Cause I don't know if you know this, but oysters can last in the fridge for a very long time. I did not know that. Fun fact. Yeah. Depending on, obviously you need to know when they were harvested, but. Right. Can, if you know when they're, when they've been harvested, then you have an actual you can have, you have a real time frame. Yeah. You, you can put them in the fridge for a week. Wow. Hot tip. Um, Not hot tip. Wow. But I think it's like getting the big things out of the way, right? So you're not super overwhelmed as people are showing up. So I know tomorrow or Thursday, we're going to go to Guido's. I'm going to get some oysters. I'm going to make blue cheese toast. I'm going to get that all the stuff for that. Friday, we'll, we'll make the cassoulet. And then literally on, on Saturday, it'll just be about putting wine glasses out and making a salad and assembling things. I think as much as you can get done in advance is always the way to go. And also having food, making something that you can get done in advance is kind of a key move, you know? Yeah, something really delicious, but but like a castellet, it's sort of like the more it spends time. Exactly. Like a battering flavor, the better it's going to be once it hits the table, right? Exactly. And I know obviously that's super seasonal in terms of like being able to braise and soups and stews. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's ways to do that you know, any which way, like in the summer, you could marinate something. And then all you have to do is like the grill. I would just get all the, the small, like the stuff that you don't want to do while people are there done. Yeah. And also delegate. If people come over, they want to help more likely than not. Like they're going to want to pitch in. So like let them. Yeah. Like find something for them. Well, you've just led me into the next question, which is who are your best guests? What makes for an ideal guest? I love people that um, just kind of feel right at like that. I don't have to worry about like people that just like put themselves to work or take themselves, you know, pour themselves a glass of wine. I want people to feel that they live there when they when they arrive. Like I want people to feel really comfortable in my house. So um, I feel very lucky that I have friends here that that is the case. Like we're very close with our next door neighbors. We're back and forth all the time. Our other friends live like a five minute walk away. Um, so there's sort of this built-in sort of familial vibe that I would hope uh, would translate to any guest that comes over. Now, again, sort of on the topic of the holidays, I and to maybe go back to childhood, can you tell me about your tradition of Feast of the Seven Fishes? I'm half Sicilian, but we never did oh, that. You didn't. So we I'm didn't like, do it. Maybe the ants had some semblance of a fish moment, but we no one ever did it hardcore, Seven Fishes. I'm so curious about yours. It was so cool. And, you know, my mom and her family, my grandmother and her two brothers also did it. So I grew up sort of with these relic, you know, tales from like the seventies and the even the sick, like they, everyone did it. My great grandmother, every, it sort of like was a, a generational thing. Um, and so it was like the, 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 it still is my most favorite holiday. And, um, we used to go to my uncle Michael's uh, every year and there are these, you know, very signature things that we have that are like, you know, not necessarily on, on the other people's, like they did these really um, delicious stuffed pickled peppers with anchovies and breadcrumbs or like agrodolce peppers kind of. So good. What was the shining star of the seven fishes dishes? I mean, I always, it, for me, it's pasta with clams mm -hmm. or pasta with crab. I started cooking the pasta with crab in the later, as I grew I want your recipe for that. Is it in one of your books? 
Um, there's one in back pocket pasta. Yeah. Okay, good. I never I feel like I haven't landed on one that I like. And now we do it here in Hudson, which makes me excited. You do seven fishes in Hudson. Yeah. How are you entertaining this season? What are you making? Do you have a plan already? So we just decided that I'm hosting Thanksgiving yesterday. Um, it's going to be small. It's going to be probably just four of us, just our good, good friends, which is fine with me. And actually I threw out the idea of maybe not making Thanksgiving. Like I was like, the world's our oyster. It's the four of us. Like, what do we actually want to eat? No, like, let's just talk about it. And then, cause I have this for the past couple of years, I keep threatening to do like a German Thanksgiving. Like I love that idea. That's so fun. I don't know why, but I just keep coming back to this idea of sauerbraten. Um, so I'm going to throw that out to people and see what they say. Um, I've never done an untraditional Thanksgiving. So TBD on that. Okay. Um, Christmas Eve, we will do Feast of the Seven Fishes. I always get Dungeness Crab from Pike Place Market for that, just because I just love it so much. Um, we eat it with aioli. I'll make like homemade aioli and bread, and we'll just like make little crab toasts. We will do pasta with clams for sure. Um, what else will we do? I'm trying to think. What did we do last year? Oh, caviar. Sometimes we'll do caviar, which is, it's fun, but not necessary. Um, and then anchovy. Like there's just ways to, you know, get to the seven. A, a seafood stew is always a good move. And also you get so many fishes in there. You can like count them up. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. What about New Year's Eve or New Year's Day? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you do for the, those days. So we actually started a tradition last year. Um, we do um, picking duck from like from start to finish with like homemade scallion pancakes. Chad has an air compressor that he sticks under the skin of the duck to get it like so it'll get really crispy. Um, it's kind of a funny process. That's but, really funny. I love that. So we do that for uh, New Year's Eve and then New Year's Day we go, um, well, actually, I don't know this year. Normally we go next door to our neighbors, but they're going to be in Australia. So we'll see. But we do also do homemade lasagna with pasta uh, for Christmas Day, which I really love. Chad makes pasta, like fresh pasta. That's what my family did. Oh, is that right? Like lasagna on Christmas Day. Yeah. That's the best. What yeah. about you? What are you? Uh... What am I doing? Christmas, I don't know yet. Thanksgiving's going to be with all my family. Like my brother's here. I have nephews here. Um, last New Year's Eve and day, I was with friends in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That was pretty amazing. Cool. It was really nice. Now that we've talked about entertaining, can we talk about leftovers? Yeah, sure. When you cook often, you often have leftovers. I know in your book, you talk about picnics and how do you use your leftovers? Can you share some tips and ideas? I mean, depending on what you've got, I mean, I feel like anything, well, really, well, first of all, if I have a ton of leftovers, I will often reach out to a neighbor and just say, hey, listen, like I made this thing. Right. I mean, you're, this is, you're in the business of this. So you often probably have to give things away. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, in terms of like Thanksgiving and stuff, like the best, if we do make a turkey, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, we have now a tradition where I I'll braise turkey thighs. I won't do a whole bird because I like the shreddability of the meat. And so then, um, we'll take leftover turkey and we'll turn that into um, enchiladas verde. And then we've done that now for like the last three weeks of the leftover turkey meat. Um, and then we'll take the bones and we'll make the stock. And then there's always a turkey soup that's going to happen. Um, I like it with like a little bit of pasta, just like a kind of like a 
I don't know, not like a soup, but like a more of like a stew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should write it down. I don't know. I mean, turkey is sort of like a chicken that keeps on giving, right? Right. And leftovers in general, right? Kalu are great for back pocket pastas, right? Oh, they're amazing for back pocket pastas. Like all those little vegetables and all the things that you've got, right? Absolutely. Or hash. You could do a hash with lots of leftover vegetables. I actually had that today. You had a hash today? Yeah, I had, I had, what did I have? I had potatoes. I had broccoli oh. and mushroom. And I just like warmed it up in the oven and threw a couple of eggs on top of it. I was just going to say throw an egg on. Yeah, that's what I did. I made a roast chicken on, on Friday night and we had like a heel of like stale bread. And I was like, I'm going to make a Caesar salad. I'm like, I'm going to cube that bread and toast it in the schmaltz when the bird comes out to rest. And like my wheels started spinning and I was like, okay. And then it was, they were amazing croutons. And then there was all this other kind of like fond on the bottom of the pan. So I like kind of chipped away at that and threw that in the salad too, which was really good. Wow. Inside your mind. Uh, all of its ideas brewing. As we wrap the podcast, I want to talk about what's on your hit list of favorite things these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Fly by Jing, who they make the most amazing chili crisps, they just launched a new one. Oh, they did? Yeah. It's, it's, I haven't even been able to post about it because it's almost gone yet. It's, it's called, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Chengdu. And it has, um, soybeans, peanuts, uh, pumpkin seeds and it's like and a chili crisp. Oh, it's like a nutty one. Interesting. And I love nuts and seeds, like obsessed with nut in anything. Like the bread that I toasted was sesame bread. Like I love seeds. So it's really good. And it's now like on they launched it like last week and it's on Amazon. So you can get it everywhere. Chili crisp is on fire right now. Like people can't get enough. It's the biggest growing market. <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay. Um so definitely you gotta check that out. Okay. Um, what else? I'm really into um, these uh, wine glasses. They're they're universal like tasting glasses, but they look like the ones that you get in like a French wine bar. They're called um, ISO, and the brand is Rano. And you know when you go like to France or Italy, and they're like these sort of like they're short. The stem is like super short. Yeah. yeah, I'm obsessed with them. That's how I drink my wine every night in one of those because it makes me feel like I'm still in Europe. <laughs> Yes. 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 I was in Paris not too long ago during fashion week. Oh, that's cool. I went, do you know about La Bouvette? Oh yeah. I'm friends with her. I was at La Bouvette when I was there and I was just like, oh, this is heaven. Anyway, go on. Yes. The best. Love I love that thought. I was just going to say, speaking of Paris, I'm also really into uh, the fall knit collection that Cezanne put out. Oh yeah. Cezanne, love. Yeah. Okay. Fall knits. I love, there's a couple, weirdly, I ended up getting like three green sweaters, but like all different shades of green. That's um, really funny. I just bought a couple of green sweaters. Is green like a popular color for sweaters this year? No, it's my favorite color, but I've never seen. So I just, I realized that I was like, oh, that's all green, but they're all different. So it's fine. What else? Oh, I just got the advanced copy in my friend Joe Piazza's book called The Sicilian Inheritance. So I'm really excited about that. I want a copy of that book. I've known Joe for since my days at Full Picture. She was a new gossip columnist at the Daily News, and I was like a, a rookie PR person. And my boss at the time, she's like, "You gotta just, you gotta meet, you gotta meet people. Call, call Joe Piazza and introduce yourself." I could like hear somebody saying that to you, and I did it, and we're still in touch. So I, I love that. <laughs> I love that story of how you met. 
Yeah, we kind of started out, you know, at the same time. So I'm really excited about this book. Great. She said there's a lot of really great food moments, and it's based on her family story. So, like a story that hasn't been, it's like a bit of a mystery. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, a red lip, always. What is your red lip of choice? Right, right now, it's Ilya's uh, flame. Okay, perfect. And also, their mascara is insane. The Ilya mascara. I tried, I tried their like, um, what is it? It's like a face serum with a little color yeah. to it. I, th- I think I bought the wrong color because everybody I know is raving about it. And I'm like, it's not working for me. I love that mascara. I think it's wonderful. Kalu, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It was so great to talk to you. We're going to do more together, right? Yeah. I, I have to give you some recipes. It was great to get to know you. And it's so lovely. Thank you yeah. so much. And we'll stay in touch. Thank you.